And as you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, tucked away in there at the end of your Bibles between Hebrews and Revelation, just want to, on a personal note, just mention that as month two of pneumonia settles on my house, um, thank you all so much for your generosity, your meals, your prayers, your words of encouragement, your uh, trips to the store on our behalf, and Thank you, Randy and the elders, for picking up a lot of the slack and my inability lately. And thank you all in advance for your patience as I uh, preach the word with, if first service was any gauge, with minimal coughing interruption, um, I will do my best. But uh, we will hear the word of the Lord this morning from 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 9, hear now the word of the Lord. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the word that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is the word of the Lord. I wonder if you have ever been in a car with a child on a long road trip. Or perhaps you yourself at some point have been a child, maybe. And you've been in a car on a long road trip, in experiencing it in a way that children today could never understand. The unentertained, undistracted hours upon hours as the miles rolled by. And there's only one question on your minds. Are we there yet? And the trip, oh my goodness. I, mean, I remember as a child the nine hour or nine hour and 20 minutes trip from my home in Virginia to my, my grandparents' home in Pittsburgh every year at Christmas time with my two sisters sitting with me in the back seat of a Buick Skylark with our territory marked by a line in the seat and nothing to keep us entertained. But I knew this I knew it was nine hours and 20 minutes. And I had my little calculator watch, and I would literally watch the minutes go by for nine hours and 20 minutes. But what if you were on a road trip and had no idea how long it was going to take? For the Christian, life can feel that way. God has promised that He will bring His people to a final rest, to a place of blessing and happiness a place of promises fulfilled and sadness transformed into rejoicing. God has promised that falsehood and evil and injustice will be dealt with and ultimately removed from His kingdom, but we're not there yet. 
And as the years roll by and we have no end in sight, the children of God ask from the back seat, are we there yet? How much longer till we get there? And God calls upon His people to wait. And, and it's hard to wait as we watch relationships devolve and crumble around us, as we watch culture decay, as we watch evil people control nations, as we watch those who are sinful prosper and succeed, and we wonder how much longer it's hard to wait. And as the miles stretch on and the years pass, it's easy to get impatient and Peter is writing to a church that understands that. And as he writes to the church of God in his day and in our own, he wants to remind the church of what it is that gives us the strength to wait. As we just sang, strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. But how? Where does that strength come from as we wait? And Peter reveals to us where we get the strength to wait. The first thing we see is that we find strength in the Word of God. Kind of touching back on some things we looked at a few weeks ago, Peter speaks of the Word of God. And in verse 2, he tells the church to remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Leave that verse on the screen for just a minute. I want to make a couple observations about it. First, Peter is referring to both the Old Testament, as we would call it, the holy prophets of the past, and the New Testament, the commandments through Jesus and His apostles. And he observes two things that we'll find in the Word of God. Number one, predictions, telling us what to expect, but also commandment, telling us what to do. Are, that not, are, that not, excuse me, are not those the very things that we need when we're struggling to wait? We want to know what to expect, what, what's coming, what can we look forward to? But also, what do we do in the meantime? Predictions and commandments. Scripture gives us insight into both. And the assumption of that is that the Word of God is relevant for us today. It's not just an artifact. If I were to take and read a guidebook on the Philippines, I would maybe find it informative, educational, interesting. But for the most part, I would not find it very relevant or useful to my life at this point. But for Carolyn Merker and Millie Cook, members of our church who are at this moment on a mission trip with Cheryl Crocker, our missionary of the month who we just prayed for, they are currently at this moment in the Philippines. A guidebook telling you how to order food, how to find the bathroom, what to expect culturally and geographically is not just curiosity's sake. It's a lifeline. It tells you how to live. It's one thing to look at the Bible and think it's just a, an inspirational or interesting or informative book. It's one thing to look at it and see the commands as interesting and helpful moral advice for some situations, or to look at the, the historical portions of the book and write it off as, oh, well, that, that's what happened to those people a long time ago in another time and place. But that's not how the Bible is meant to be read or received. The Word of God gives us strength to wait because it is written to us in our situation. When we don't see it that way, we, we distance ourselves from the events and commands of Scripture, and consequently, we distance ourselves from the God described in Scripture. 
Paul writes in Romans 15, of the Old Testament even, he says that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Whenever you pick up this book, whenever you approach God's Word, you are to take it as a form of instruction, teaching us not only moral principles and facts about the past, but more importantly, teaching us the right way to see the world and to live in it. This is rewriting the narrative of history and of your life. And that instruction has a purpose. The purpose is to give you hope, to enable you to endure. So that's what Peter is saying in verse 1. He says, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of a reminder. He says it's a reminder. That word stirring up is elsewhere translated and used to describe waking up someone. You know, some of you know somebody that you can't just wake them up with a gentle, hey, it's time to get up. It's time to wake up. There was too much stuff on that for me to have done that. That's what Peter's doing. I've got to stir you up by way of reminder. Reminder. Peter's telling us that what he's writing in this letter, it's, it's, it's not meant to be, nor does it need to be, something new. And what we are studying here and learning here is, is a continuity, a consistency of the unchanging story of Scripture. So Peter says to, to the church of his day and to us today that the problems that you are facing the challenges, the hardships, the discouragements. You don't need some new word. You don't need some new method, some new theory, or some new theology to deal with it, to tell you what's happening and what to do about it. Our our publishing industry, the social media world, the online news industry, they only survive if we are insistent on finding something new. We don't need new answers to our problems. We need to be reminded of what has always been true, that God is in control and that Jesus is King. Our struggles with faith and with doubt and with obedience, our struggle with fear and with opposition and with a culture unhinged may look a little different in our day than it did in days past, but it is not something novel It is not something unforeseen by God, and it is not something new to the experience of humanity. Instead, these things are right in line with the experience of God's people in Peter's day, in Moses' day, in the the garden with Adam and Eve and the serpent. This is what God's people have experienced generation after generation. And we may be sure that the gospel offers hope and direction in whatever circumstances we are facing. So come to God's Word and be reminded. And in being reminded, be stirred up and shaken awake. That's one reason that regular public worship is so important, along with other habits like family worship or individual prayer and Bible reading, because we need regular reminders from the Word in order to give us the strength to wait for the Lord. Find strength in the Word of God. Peter goes on to say, we don't just have words, we have more than that. We can look to the past and see what God has done. And when we see what God has done, we find strength in the deeds of God. The Christians to whom Peter is writing are discouraged 
and they're worried and they're frustrated. They're facing false teachers and deceivers and, and a culture and even a government that is attacking them and persecuting them. Peter, shortly after writing this, would have his own life taken under Nero Caesar for being a preacher of the gospel. And the church to which he's writing are being frustrated because of scoffers, people who are making fun of them for their way of living in obedience to God. So in verse 3, Peter describes them this way. He says, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, as scoffers are prone to do, following their own sinful desires. And that last phrase is key because it shows you their main motivation. They refuse to live in obedience to God's Word. They are mocking those who think that it's wise to follow God's way, like the bullies on the playground bullying the, the goody-two-shoes who are still following the teacher's rules when no one's looking. Why would you still listen? There's not going to be any consequences. And here's how they justify it in verse 4. They, these scoffers, will say, Hey, where is the promise of His coming? Psh, ever since the fathers fell asleep... All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Basically, their argument is this. Look, nothing has changed. From the creation of the world, everything's gone on the same. God has not stepped in and done anything about people who don't follow His way. Why do we expect it's going to be any different today? The, the fathers is a way of referring to the people of generations long ago. And they're saying, look, nothing has changed and nothing is going to change. It's business as usual. Stop worrying about it. In the language of today, they might put it in these terms. Hey, the universe is a closed system. The idea of supernatural intervention or divine judgment is absurd. It's laughable. It's excluded based on logic alone. Why would you worry about this? And to answer their objection, Peter says, you know, you, you're leaving out one important thing. In fact, Peter accuses them of deliberately, willfully ignoring evidence in verse 5. He says they deliberately overlook this fact. And my wife likes to watch detective shows, and as we watch them together, there's this just pattern of, of you're seeing the evidence gathered together, and you're trying to formulate your own theory and seeing if you can figure it out. And it seems to all be leading in one direction, but oh no, the fingerprints don't match. Oh no, I, th I thought it was her, but she's got an alibi. Oh no, now my theory is off. And that's, that's what Peter's saying. He's like, look, if you can't have a convincing case unless it includes all of the evidence. You ever, what was that old detective show, Columbo? He was the detective who would uh, pretend he was a little ignorant and kind of trick the, the criminals. And he'd be hearing their case and their alibi and their defense and be following along and, and act like he's buying it all. Oh, okay, okay. And just as he's about to leave, he'd say, there's one other thing. What about this? And that's what Peter's doing. He says, look, there's one thing you've left out, one crucial bit of evidence here. And when you're talking about our belief in God and about salvation, you have to be sure that you're taking all of the facts into consideration, not just the ones you agree with, not just the ones that support the conclusion you want. You have to take all the facts into consideration. And so Peter says, there's one more thing I don't, that you've, you've, you've left out, and it's an important one. It's the flood. He describes in, in verses 5 and 6 that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. 
And by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Peter's describing how God, through his word, brought the earth into being, shaping land and water just by speaking. And this process shows the power of God's word in creating the world and in sustaining the world, keeping it going. But that same word, when God saw that the world was filled with evil, that same word declared judgment and spoke the flood into existence. The flood was God's judgment on the wickedness of humanity. But in grace, at the same time, he chose to save Noah and his family and the animals with them. And Peter's big point, the whole reason that he's bringing this up, is to refute those who say that nothing ever changes. He says, look, did you forget about it? Are you ignoring what God did back then? Everything has not continued as it was since creation. There was a doozy of an interruption to the normal sequence of things when God flooded the earth as a judgment upon sin. And this shows that God does, in fact, step in and judge sin and deliver his people. And so to you, the people of God who are weary of waiting, find strength to wait as you remember the deeds of the Lord. Remember what he has already done because it shows what kind of God he is. How does his history give you hope for what is to come? In Psalm 145, the psalmist says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. Four times in three verses, the psalmist points out that we need to remember and to recount to one another from generation to generation the deeds of the Lord. That's what's going on right now with our children that are in children's training time. One generation is commending the works of the Lord to another. That's what happens when families gather together to study God's word together and to worship. That's what happens when grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles speak to the children of the deeds of the Lord. Because the Christian faith is not just a system of doctrine. It's not just a list of ideas. It is a history It's a history of God in action. And that history culminates in God himself taking on human form, dying a criminal's death, giving up his life in place of his rebellious children. These are the deeds of the Lord. Child of God, if you are struggling to wait for him to act, know that the greatest action he could possibly take, he has already done. In Romans 8, we are reminded that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What that verse is saying is that when you consider the deeds of the Lord, when you see what he has done, especially in that he has given his own son to die for sinners, that gives you strength to know that whatever else needs to be done, the Lord will do it. It is under control. Consider the deeds of God, people, and find the strength to wait. So we find strength in the Word of God. We find strength in the deeds of God. And one more thing Peter shows us is that we find strength in the character of God. Verse 9, Peter says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He's patient towards you 
Patience of God is a very good thing for us, as he explains in verse 7. Considering the flood, he says, by that same word, now the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. God destroyed the world with a flood because of the evil of people. They had filled the earth with evil. God had created man and woman in his image, and he said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. They were to fill the earth with the image of God in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. Instead, they chose sin, and they still were fruitful and multiplied. And we see that they filled the earth with evil. And God said, no, that's not my plan. Let's, let's clear the evil from the earth. And now today, we have again filled the world with evil. And the expectation is that God would intervene and eliminate. But He doesn't. Not yet. The world continues. People have again filled the world with evil, and yet the world continues. This is not God's negligence. This is God's patience. Punishment is being stored up, Peter says, until the day of judgment. Until then, until the day of judgment, God is merciful and patient, allowing the world to continue, graciously giving us rain and sunshine, graciously allowing us to enjoy sandy beaches and snowy hills and every beauty that fills the earth. He has not stepped in and wiped it out yet, not because he doesn't care, not because he is bored or slow, but because he is patient and merciful. He is mercifully waiting. And Peter references Psalm 90 where Moses, who wrote one psalm that we know of, Psalm 90, says, A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So Peter says in verse 8, Hey, don't overlook this other fact, this one other fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Peter's not saying that God doesn't understand time. God created time. He understands it. And when He took on flesh as Jesus Christ, He lived in time. He experienced long days and nights just as we do. But God is not bound by time, stuck in it the way we are, forced to live it sequentially day after day. I think of this weird way to think of it, but when I'm reading a book and you know, sometimes you get interrupted and you've got to stop in the middle of a page, maybe two characters in the middle of a conversation, and you've got to stop in the middle of that conversation and set the book aside, Pick it up three weeks later, they're still in the middle of that conversation. Time has not moved. Or you're reading and you turn a page and suddenly 500 years have passed in the turn of a page. It was a second for you. It was 500 years in the story. That's more of how God interacts with time. He is above it like the author who writes the story. He doesn't go through it like the characters of the story. He stands above it. So Peter is not giving math equations for us to calculate when the end time is coming. That's not his point at all. Peter's trying to express that, that God is not time-oriented. He's goal-oriented. You know, if you have a stubborn child like I was who would not eat the food his parents put in front of him, it did no good if my parents said, you've got to stay at this table for another 30 minutes. Because you know what I would do? I would sit at that table for 30 minutes and eat nothing. You, you have to be goal-oriented. You're going to sit at this table until you finish the food I put in front of you. Okay, God, in a very positive way, is not time-oriented. He's goal-oriented. He's not looking at His cosmic watch saying, all right, no matter what happens, I'm coming back in 17 years. No. 
God is goal-oriented. There is a plan, a purpose that is being carried out, and God is patient until that plan reaches its fulfillment. So if that plan unfolds over a thousand years, God does not consider it slow. He is fulfilling His promise. The delay, any delay from our perspective, it would be a delay. Any delay is necessary because of the mercy of God. God's character is loving kindness. He is patient and He desires salvation for all His children. Peter says in verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but He is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, Peter's not making a statement about election and who's going to be saved here. He's describing the character, the heart of God. The God who says in Ezekiel 18, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? God desires for the sinner to repent, and he gives time. His character is patience. Now, I've been on many flights in my day, and there are times where my connecting flight is late, and I'm running up trying to get to the gate of my next flight, and I see them close the door. I've got my ticket. I'm almost there. Sorry. Now, when I'm the guy on the plane already waiting for us to leave, that's the kind of flight attendant I want. Okay, let's get going. But when I'm the guy with a toddler strapped to my back whose connecting flight is late, and we're running through the airport, and this has happened to me three times in three different countries with two different toddlers strapped to my back, and you're running up, just desperate to get to that connecting flight. And, and what you want is the flight attendant who's holding the door open. Say, it's okay, it's okay, you're going to make it. We can wait. Come on, come on. That's who you want. And that, brothers and sisters, is the character of the Lord. He will not close the door until everyone who needs to be on board makes it. And until then, he holds the door open and waits. And so he says in John 10, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must, I must, I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Do you sense the desperation, the earnestness, the love in the shepherd's voice? I have to bring my sheep. I will not close the door until they make it. And so he says in Matthew 24, when Jesus is describing the end times, he says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. He will not return. He will not close the door. He will not say it's done until every one of his sheep has heard and had the chance to enter through. The door through which they must enter, Peter describes, is repentance. The Lord is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but that all should reach repentance. Those who will turn from their sin and trust in Christ for salvation. He waits until every one of his children has done that. And only then will the end come. So my brothers and sisters, if you are weary of waiting, find strength to wait in the character of God. Because the delay, the waiting, is not laziness on God's part. It's not negligence on God's part. It's not sloppiness on God's part. It is love on the part of the one who waits and beckons all of his children to come in. 
Only when all the animals are safe on the ark will the door close and the rains of judgment begin to fall. Until then, we wait, trusting that the delay will not be one second longer than necessary for God's children to come home. There's a, a story I've shared with you before from my family, and I, I'm going to share it again because not all of you have heard it, and I think it perfectly describes the, the attitude we need as we think about waiting for the Lord. It was with our first child who, who joined our family when she was three years old and did not at the time speak English and was just, just beginning to absorb the language. And those of you that know her know she has certainly picked up the language by now, um, has had no trouble with the English language. Uh, but when we had just had her for a few months, um, a friend of ours um, took her for a day to just kind of give us a break and took her out to a playground. And when they came back, she said, you know, the strangest thing happened. I, I took her to the playground, and, she, and there was a swing she wanted to go on, but there was another kid on it. And I, I didn't know how, to, you know, she doesn't speak English. I didn't know how to explain to her. All I, all I could say was, wait. And when I said wait, she just smiled really big, like I'd given her the best thing in the world, and she just stood there shaking with excitement. I don't know if she understood me. And, you know, there's one thing that we'd done really well as new parents um, is that we had taught her that when we said wait, she would always get it. Whatever she had to wait for, she would get. Wait was not no. Wait was not just a, a, a way to stop the kid from asking for what they wanted. Wait was always yes. It was a yes delayed but it was always a yes. And she'd learned that. That was the one thing she'd really gotten from the beginning. So when she heard, wait, what she was hearing was, yes, yes, you can have that. Brothers and sisters, that's what God is telling you. That's what Peter wants the church to see. That's what I want you to see in these verses, that, that in Christ, the word of God is showing us that he keeps his promises, that all of God's promises are a yes to you in Christ. And then in Christ, we see the deeds of God, punishing sin and saving his people. And in Christ, we see the character of God, patiently waiting until his work of salvation is complete. All these things show us reliably that when God says, wait, he is saying, yes. Yes, it is all coming true. Yes, I will return. I will make it all new. Yes, I will avenge evil. I will right the wrongs of the world. Yes, just wait. With Christ in view, brothers and sisters, we have the strength. Strength will rise as you wait upon the Lord. The Lord who is our God, our help in ages past. He is also our hope for years to come. With his word, his deeds, and his character in view, brothers and sisters, wait with confidence and with joy and endure. Let's thank him and pray for that, the strength to wait today. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises that we have fulfilled in Christ, for your great works revealed in Christ, and for your character displayed before us in vivid detail in Jesus Christ. Because of Him, we have the strength to wait for Your return, knowing that waiting means working. Waiting means enduring difficulty. Waiting does not mean ease. But it does mean that, yes, these things will be true. 
Give us the strength to wait as we look to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.